theme for the evening talk is love and equanimity. It's not uh, unusual in uh, religion to centralize to a tremendous degree the place of love, the making love the core, the essence, the very heart of religious life. And perhaps best known to us in the three words in the New Testament, God is love. And with the place of love, it in its centralized form and expression, it places and puts upon the human being a tremendous task, a tremendous undertaking to live a life of love. To such a degree, in fact, that possibly and probably most human beings find it quite uh, impossible to live up to such a high demand and expectation of the heart to live in love, to live with love as the primary and sustainable experience of one's day-to-day existence. To the point and to the degree that the invasions of self, the appearances of ego, the wantings and the likings and the dislikings of uh, the mind, and all the forms of disturbances and reactivity seem to make the task and the challenge of living in love or living with God in that religious language too hard a job too big a job so then religion as it were came in particularly Middle Eastern uh, religions here and to some degree in the East and said you, we can't do it and one needed an agency one needed a force one needed something other than one's own effort to transform one's heart to live a life in a different way and some religions have said one needed God or in Christianity it would be said one can't do it oneself one needs uh, Jesus to uh, act as the transforming agent and from that the heart can be changed there can be a turnaround of the heart and one can live with love love of God, love of humankind, etc. But sometimes we have heard this and 
again have been somewhat unsure about it. Can one, with the outside agent, so to speak, with one's own efforts, actually and honestly live an unshakable existence grounded in the experience of love? Has anyone, anywhere, achieved it? Sometimes we want to believe at least somebody has somewhere and we might turn to various authoritative religious texts and we read and we may be impressed therein and it's easier to find someone who's dead who is totally loving than someone who is alive and we have constantly turned to the dead for encouragement and inspiration because it can be too risky going to those who are alive and sometimes we go to those who are alive and we're very selective in our picking out things to keep and bear the image of uh, love and uh, possibly, probably a few people on this earth who we might think of as all loving in their manner and it's fairly safe to do because we don't know them so it's in contact and in closeness that the realities of human life and existence of past and present seem to stand out and that's not to encourage though you might think otherwise to develop a cynical view of human behaviour past and present and human patterns but it's a small gesture and attempt to bring into our circumstances realism authentic, practical, down-to-earth realism and then when we come to ourselves, more important we may have said, we may say to ourselves well, I'm I'm abandoning uh, G.O.D. and the various prophets and agents who act as a go-between and I look at myself and I'll see how my inner life is and what is showing in that and at times you and I and others can be quite capable of expressing a great deal of love it might show itself as as an unshakable friendship towards another or others and as has been commented quite often in the spiritual life it can be much easier to um, love everybody and all sentient beings than to love a few who are rather close to us. And we know we can demonstrate 
in ourselves, great expressions of warmth, kindness, friendship, empathy, closeness, generosity, um, kindness, deep human goodness, in fact, towards others, both near and far. And all of that says something about the human heart and the human spirit to do it. And unfortunately, if one is rather spiritual, which always has a strong tone of idealism running through it, it might be extraordinarily difficult when the circumstances of life are changing around us or inside of us to keep the love going. And yet we can be asking this of ourselves and of others in a way which is out of our reach. Nobody can keep the love flowing morning, noon and night. Nobody. And yet, we imagine, we think, we should, because we're so-called spiritual, because we meditate, because we're engaged in service, because we feel for the plight and circumstances of those who are near and far, all of that contact and intimacy can place upon ourselves an expectation which, as I said before, is quite unrealistic. To be consistently kind, consistently warm, consistently loving, consistently compassionate, consistently giving, consistently forgiving. And if there's any carrying of image about how we think we ought to be or should should be, I've meditated all this amount of time, or whatever it might be, we actually end up in a state of reactivity because of the expectations we have on ourselves. We end up in a state of reactivity because of the expectations we have on ourselves. And whenever we introduce to ourselves, by now I should be, we're actually removed and we're actually out of contact and out of touch with ourselves. When we say, by now I should be, and then we add one of these lovely spiritual words onto the end, by now I should be in deep samadhi, by now I should be clear, by now I should be a bodhisattva, by now I... It goes on and on. And it doesn't take into account the practicalities and the realities of who we are. Anybody like to be... Um, thank you. <laughs> I would go, but if I did, perhaps everybody would leave the room and go to the garden. <laughs> so in our contact, we have these kind of almost internal mantras, in a way, that can, can go on within us about how we think we should be by now. This, as I say, tends to indicate a being out of touch. So then one has to ask oneself, is love something relative? Not only relative to our experience of life, but relative 
to the kind of circumstances and situations in which we are in. Is this expression of the heart we call love, we call kindness, we call friendship, we call giving, we call generosity, many ways of love showing itself, something relative to circumstances? And that we don't place it in such a high metaphysical category as ultimate, as absolute, as the highest thing which is attainable. We put it in a state of relativity. Over the years I have um, listened, and perhaps some of you have as well, to a range of um, stories um, which centre and focus around people's experiences. And one may have engaged in life in certain, what one might consider, um, acts of love, acts of kindness, acts of giving, whatever. And then something has occurred, one feels one has been um, betrayed, hurt, uh, let down, promises, agreements were uh, broken, the person um, 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 moved on, the person dropped out, the person began to condemn, criticise, judge, blame, etc, etc. And so there has been the experience of giving, of loving, of kindness, of warmth, of friendship, of intimacy, or whatever. And the outcome of it is it started off in heaven and it ended up in hell, in, term, in emotional terms. And one feels very disappointed, let down, hurt, betrayed, rejected, forgotten, etc., and there's been a major impact, boom, on the emotions. And the emotions being disturbed in the way that they are, then start to produce different kind of emotions. And one has then gone or undergone a complete turnaround. And the expression of it becomes from the hurt, the reaction, the negativity, the hostility, the anger, the upset, the pain, the, the rage, the thoughts of revenge, the scheming and planning to get one's own back on this person for what he, she or they did. And one wonders, how could it be but here I was for a period of time in my life incredibly giving, warm, connected, close, intimate over days, weeks, months, years, even decades in some cases. And the fruit of all of that is one would send a Scud missile at that person if one could get close enough. What's gone on in the history through that period of time? And when we have that, and the rage and the reaction 
and all that goes with it, it's not surprising, therefore, that we say hate is the opposite of love. Love and hate, mostly. But there is a, a dualism. And in that dualism where we are vulnerable, we can easily swing from one to another. And the effect of that could be for some in believing that to kind of cultivate um, this uh, uh, Buddhist detachment to life. The Buddha has never even used the word detachment. It was uh, caught up by depressed monks. (laughs) So, in the relationship, I mean it, (laughs) so, love then gets the kind of um, a relativity, but a relativity in such a way that one thinks of love and hate as two as opposite to each other and therefore if we're going to be really loving in life the possibility, if not the probability that to what we love the most we can hate the most and it's not unusual for people to come on a, a, a retreat and maybe uh, maybe um, coming from some recently painful uh, situation can be relationship it could be that one's just lost a partner, or um, uh, lost the job, or the uh, landlord has just increased the, the monthly rate, or whatever, or the person who lives next door, door, next door to you insists on um, putting on the rock sound as loud as possible. Whatever it, the picture, the image, and the memory is. And one loves that situation, that place, that environment, that person, that job, or whatever. And then, while sitting here, and walking here, the mind is plotting and scheming there. One has just been reborn on the retreat as a terrorist. (laughs) And one is scheming of ways to terrorize another. And one is, what has happened in the emotional life that one has swung so from one to another? And if Jesus is supposed to turn one from uh, hatred to love. Who on earth, or what on earth, turned one from love to hate in just as dramatic a way? And all of that, as it were, the devil within oneself, we uh, might say. In the teachings, if I may say, the teachings of the of the the Buddha explored this. Um, but I felt and do feel with a great deal of um, insight and uh, and understanding, and as a uh, radically, I think, fresh and different view of the place of love in the spiritual uh, spiritual life. But as the, in the impact, before I just touch on that, in the impact, and obviously important and and necessary to be very very vigilant here, as elsewhere with the kind of soap operas that one is creating during uh, the day here and and what kind of pictures, images, thoughts and ideas uh, memories, plans and associations are going on in some um, drama that one is creating and producing which uh, 
I'd put EastEnders, those of you who live in this part of the world, to shame. That's a, a soap opera. And in that production which is going on, the feeling input, the tone, all of that which I spoke about uh, yesterday, also has its bearing upon the storyline. And sometimes when we're really caught in and, and identified, even with a great deal of, of kind of detachment and, um, and just looking so-called objectively uh, at the facts of the situation. And then we perhaps want to tell the other person, we think about him, her, them, we, um, we want to telephone them or write to them or we imagine the dialogue which we will have with him or her the next time we uh, see them. And in all of, in all of that that goes on there, the rage may have faded away, the anger may have faded away, and one is believing one is being clear-minded and uh, factual and objective. And so one wishes to give in their best interest some information back to them which they don't know about and one brings in one's psychological knowledge and one's meditation uh, knowledge and etc and the underlying action the underlying feeling which is coming actually is revenge You've hurt me, you did this to me, you said this to me, whatever it might have been. And now I'm going to tell you things I have never told you before, etc. And one's got it quite clear in one's mind, because one has spent the entire week here planning it, (laughs) of what one is going to say when one sees this person. And one thinks one is being objective. The real intention is revenge to hurt, to get one's own back, to give feedback, to make the other person feel the way that one felt. And therefore, the love isn't present. It isn't there. Something else is going on. And it's showing itself in the motive and in the attitude. With spiritual idealism, which pervades the heart and even the most kind and caring heart. If one has had a rhythm and flow and practice, in fact, of, um, of love and loving kindness, and just earlier I was speaking about um, Sharon Salzberg, who has just uh, a book which has come out recently, I think it's called Loving Kindness, and it's a book on loving-kindness practices, loving-kindness meditations there, and rather beautifully done and published in the uh, US. This is a quick advertisement for the book. And it's one of quite a range of books which are available, as we know, on uh, the shelves of spirituality, Buddhism, psychotherapy, which do address quite appropriately and usefully the the place of the heart. But unless there is um, other considerations which go in relationship to that, 
then easily, as I say, the idealism can build up. And what one does hear regularly, in fact too regularly, is through all of these spiritual practices, I ought to be forgiving. This person has done something to me, this has happened in my life, past or present. You can start off with the parents, of course, they're a very popular target these days for being um, utterly unforgiving towards. And one says, oh, I should be forgiving for what he, she, they have done to me. It takes an extraordinary degree of human spirit and extraordinary and unusual depth of love to actually be faced with something which is dramatic, traumatic for one and then out of the heart comes forgiveness. It does occur and sometimes you and I read of accounts in newspapers where something terrible has happened to a member of the family and one of the members of the family holds no hatred and is actually, through their communication, one feels the honesty of their capacity to forgive. But it's very rare. It's obviously very unusual and for <clears throat> all too many it's despair, disappointment, um, uh, depression, unhappiness and um, wanting the same thing to happen to that person as has happened to oneself or to one's family member or to what, whatever. So in the teachings that have uh, taken place of the, uh, of the Buddha, there's not a great deal of reference to uh, uh, forgiveness in the text. I mean, it's there, but not such a great reverence to it. And it is said, and the Buddha has given on the same par- the same parity, the response of equanimity. To equanimity, meaning the capacity. Do you want to? No, it is. Just a <laughs> popular place guy house tonight, eh? Well, we'll watch him depart with equanimity. <laughs> and so, in, in love, in the relationship to love and the expressions of it, when in the circumstances of life our love is challenged, we can't keep the love flowing for all the reasons that that can be, outwardly and inwardly, of course. Can there be enough grounding and steadiness with existence that when we are not loving, as we will know periods of not loving, can there be equanimity? And that equanimity serves as a foundation, we might say, or is the basis of the heart. This even-mindedness, this steadfastness, this um, presence in the face of things, and and steadiness in the face of things, which, in the Buddha's teaching, has precisely the same significance and place and value 
and importance as love does in life. You've never ever elevated love into the supreme thing of life because, as he said, for love to be, the conditions have to be there for love to be. And therefore, the, the exploration of steadiness and presence in life is a tremendous resource and something which, as it were, we can fall back on when we are not loving. And so, when we are not loving and things are not working out in the way that you or I would like and many things don't, obviously, in life, we know we've got that steadiness pervading through the heart, that equanimity running steadily through the heart there and we can rely on it. No matter what. So when things go which are difficult, we don't have the idealism saying, well, I should be forgiving or I should be able to let go. That's another popular mantra. Um, uh, I should be um, um, uh, accepting. I should be more loving, etc., etc., or the other is to go to the past and instead of throwing out the rage, the blame, the rejection towards others one does it towards oneself it's all my fault it would, this would never have happened if I hadn't done this, that and the other etc. and tremendous guilt and self-blame gets rejected can there be the, in the heart life acknowledgement of love and equally and giving equal value to the acknowledgement of equanimity. Steady heart, steadiness of heart. In the meditations and in the relationship to the meditations, the place of uh, equanimity is our means the capacity in life to stay steady in the face of pleasure and pain or neutral equanimity is the capacity in life to stay steady in the face of pleasure or pain or somewhere in between so as an example with the pleasures of uh, uh, life we know, and our society and the profiteers of it, the, the corporate uh, world, etc., etc., assaults our senses day in and day out to a kind of primary motive in which perhaps is best summarised in if we had this, whatever it is, we would be better off. That's the basic message of any advertising. We, need, we don't have it, we need it, etc. What happens in the conditioning of ourselves, in all the ways that it occurs, there's like a magnetic pull upon us. And you're sitting through the day, you're meditation, going through the day, and then some picture or image or thought or idea arises of what I would like 
with the Holy Communion being money to receive this, get what one would like. And we're constantly feeling we haven't got enough. <laughs> we, until tonight, we didn't know we didn't have enough visitors, but now. <laughs> probably a bunch of money <laughs> and so the picture is an image of what I would like arise in, in the mind and that may show itself to numerous factors of life everything from of course the sensual world to satisfy eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch to um, certain inner experiences um, mental health, emotional well-being, etc., to spiritual experiences which are mystical and uh, meditational, to experiences which are transcendental, etc. And one feels a kind of pull towards certain experiences one would put under the general category of pleasure or pleasant, etc. And the self, the I, the ego, enters into consciousness and says, I want. The I want doesn't necessarily mean I want, therefore I get. It just means I want. I want this experience. I've heard about this experience. I've read about this experience. I've had this experience and now I want it or I want it again. And the wanting itself can become the obstruction to actually being touched with life. The force of desire, I want, I want, I must get, I'm not leaving here till something profound happens to me. Well, not before Friday or Saturday anyway. <laughs> And so the one thing enters into the field of consciousness, the ego and the I is there uh, with it, it places pressure upon the inner life and the very pressure can be the abstraction. The very one thing is that which prevents one from knowing that which one wants, from touching, experiencing that which one wants. The very pressure can I don't say will, but can. So equanimity in life is noticing this movement that's going on inside of oneself, acknowledging the, the movement of it, and hopefully with enough clarity to see how much is inner peace dependent on getting something from this wanting. How much is inner peace dependent upon getting what I want? And if one sees one's inner peace is, that, is going to be sacrificed, if it's going to create more agitation, then equanimity is vital. Can I be equanimous to whatever I want from this experience of being here for a week or whatever? Can I be equanimous towards whatever happens? 
Sometimes the equanimity is not in fact towards something which I want, but towards the fact which experienced meditators know, and sometimes people new to this, is equanimity when nothing is happening. It's not like that one is looking for anything or trying to get anything. The simple actuality is that the experience shows nothing is happening. It's not pleasurable. Nothing profound is happening. It's not painful. It's just as it is. But in that region of just as it is, the view can accompany it something more should be happening and when the view comes stronger something more should be happening gradually the dissatisfaction with the experience nothing is happening begins to grow and then it goes from nothing is happening to I'm bored out of my mind in this place and the reaction starts to come in and then the anger and the negativity and the hostility and the resentment and the disappointment and all of that begins to feed because one has grasped hold of the viewpoint nothing is happening and one is unable to see something deeper than the simple fact nothing is happening If we really understood what, the, what it means, nothing is happening, if we really understood, we would be awakened. If we really understood what that meant. But we just grasp it at superficial level, at face value, and then gradually we invest into it, usually boredom, dullness, uh, and then reaction and negativity, following on like a sequence of events. There are periods of time as well, of course, when we're faced with the unpleasant and the painful. We experience resistance. We experience uh, pains in the body. We experience uh, the mind which doesn't want to calm down. We experience um, issues which are going on in our life which are disturbing and unsettling and the tendency of the mind with the painful experiences is to want to understand them to want to be able to explain what's going on to ourselves so if we can really explain what's going on and why we are feeling like we are feeling and why we've got these pains like we have got them and why these issues in our life are unresolved if we can explain all that then we think, well, now that I'm explaining to myself that should end it because I've explained the whole problem and if I can't explain it then, well, that's why it continues we, we begin to rely on an explanation to the answer of all problems And so, one can spend in the meditation incredible amounts of time trying to explain to oneself why one's got a stiff shoulder blade. 
or, or one keeps going over some issue that somebody said or um, why the person is snoring in the next bed every night or whatever it might be that's got one going and one looks for the explanation as a way to resolve something why? because we were told that in the science laboratory when we were a little child or the physics teacher or this always having things explained to us as the means for a solution but in spiritual life there's no such comfort if it happens that in the reflection or in the explanation that comes it solves it the problem goes away the issue goes away perhaps at the best we can just think of it as a happy coincidence <laughs> I explain this situation that's going on in my life and explaining it solved it but the track record seems to be lots of explanations and too few solutions too few resolutions so the relativity of our capacity to explain to ourselves and to others needs the acknowledgement hence equanimity equanimity towards the events of life a steadiness towards the events finding that those moments of steadfastness during the day just stopping for a moment and being utterly still to sit and find a moment or two of just presence when one sees the impulse for whatever it might be and one just recognises the value of not following it through just to be equanimous to it to be non-attached to it to just to see it for what it is every gesture of that is as significant in life as every single gesture of love because without it the love can't stand up the love can't, can't, can't be present unless there is an equanimity to go with it hence the teachings the teachings of the Buddha have spoken of love and equanimity with incredible frequency paying equal respect to both of them because one needs the other and with Without both, we'll get lost. And so there are many gestures when one's got a desire to get away from the pain. One says, okay, let me just stay steady with it for that extra moment to be with it. In a way, it pays great respect to ourselves, which in a way, that equanimity is a statement of love for oneself. So our love and our equanimity, let's when the love is present, appreciate it, acknowledging it, allowing it, feeling it, experiencing it, being clear about the way that it's showing itself, and when it isn't there, are we steady with life? And we appreciate that steadiness in the same way that you and I appreciate the experience of love. And here, in our days here, have plenty of opportunity, obviously, through the day to notice 
these two elements of the heart and their place and their mutual support therefore not giving them absolute superiority absolute transcendent value because they are mutually supportive of each other may all beings live with awareness may all beings live with love may all beings live with equanimity Let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.